The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Ensemble Advice is not a licensed financial services provider and does not provide financial services. Before making investment decisions, you should obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today I have with me in the studio Jason Burnick. And Jason has a very interesting title. We're not going to go with the official version, but I think a creative at heart when I look at the element coaching, consulting, and cartooning. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. And I really look forward to unpacking everything it has within your title. Hey, Louis, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Jason, you, you started out in this profession around um, 2003, if I remember mm, correctly, that's with uh, Momentum. Give us a little bit of that backstory of how you found yourself in financial services. Yeah, um, it was even before Momentum, it was Sage. So you're right on the year 2003, but I joined Sage Life and I tell the story often. I had two weeks of product training and then I was let loose unto the world of financial planning, having to go and find my own clients. And in those days, sell them some sort of product. And at the end of that month, I owed Sage 450 Rand for parking because I hadn't, in inverted commas, written any policies. <laughs> so what led me to it was probably a bunch of trials and tribulations. I had a background in, uh, in both finance and marketing. I worked in the ad world for some time. I left that. I dabbled in my own business. Um, my partner cheated on me, my business partner. <laughs> had some other stuff going on and we had a big fight and I was wondering what I could do. And like so many financial advisors that end up in the industry, um, one or two conversations led me in that direction. My dad had been in it for, for some time. And there was an opportunity to join his branch, which was a high-performing branch. We can talk about what that actually means. <laughs> but with uh, with FaZe having, having shown up around then, there were a lot of good guys doing good things, not just trying to uh, run around with a bag of application forms. And there was literally a guy that did that. He had a bag of application forms with Tipex um, where he used to change things. Uh, 
<laughs> and it's always the last the... one, hey? If you're not going to take this one, the, the next client's going to take oh, the yeah, last yeah, application just... form. Absolutely. They, I mean, there was one guy that had a pen on his stack of application forms and let it roll off onto the table and said, oh, there's a pen. Would you like to use that to sign this application form over the TIFFIX? So I was in a lift with a guy once and he had a kit bag and I thought he had been to gym. And I go, what is it? Did you go to gym? And he goes, no, no, no. Let me show you because he was old and I was young and he knew and I was learning. And um, he, she's uh, like, like some exchange, he put the kit bag on the boardroom table and he pulls out these forms. And that's when I was introduced to Tipix in the corporate world. So, I mean, that being said, the branch that I was with was, uh, was a group of very good guys doing good things and really trying to turn the history of the insurance world into financial planning. Uh, the, the guy who was, when they played these dual roles, he was a high performing uh, financial advisor, but also managing the branch. And he was one of the first guys to go from PILPA to CFP. So I had a very good mentor at that stage. My father was in the branch. He, he was really doing the right thing as were a lot of other people. But I find myself still very soon trapped in this world of selling insurance. So no matter what I tried to do, and I joined in the October and started my diploma in financial planning in the March, which was a game changer for me. But I, w I still felt like I was fighting against the real or perceived competition of everyone that was out there with their bags of brochures and uh, those tented things where they flip the charts and you know before they all had the laptops. And I didn't like it. And look, we all know that a lot of our perceptions at that time are, are um, self-created. So it may have been a little bit of the industry and it may have been a little bit of me. And maybe it was a little bit about how agency worked at that time. Um, going back, I probably could have done a lot differently. Um, but that doesn't matter. I did well. I built up a nice, uh, a nice base of clients. I got a little bit of AUM going. I had some B funds on my book. But after five years, I just I knew that it's not where I wanted to be, and I wanted more independence and more flexibility, and I wanted to do more for my clients. And I started to look around the world at was what was happening and. The, the countries of Australia and the UK really appealed to me more than anything. So I started looking at which international companies had local presence. And uh, I skipped out the whole momentum thing. <laughs> so during this time, Momentum bought Sage and we, we, we moved over as, as an agency force and a really large book. So I continued with Momentum. So then I joined HSBC. And what was really remarkably different for me at that business was that uh, – Internally, we, we had a coaching culture, and coaching to me was still sports at that stage. It was very far removed from my knowledge and reality. And what that resulted in was the way that people showed up, showed up internally, showed up with clients, a very different way of being, a different demeanor. They spoke less and listened more, and that translated through to how I engaged with my clients. And uh, the timing was interesting. I joined in July of 2008, and shortly after that, something happened. Uh, for us, working in the high net worth space, it was opportunistic. And I was very fortunate in that I went from uh, probably I could describe myself as not an incredibly confident salesperson, a technically sound financial planner. But at Sage Momentum, I, I struggled to form and create new relationships. Uh, when I did, they were, they were really powerful. And the, um, the value delivered into them was good as well. But that new business generation was difficult for me. I wasn't a natural born salesman. I, as much as I straddle extroversion and, extra, and introversion, 
I wasn't one to go out there and just create uh, conversations from nothing. Uh, but that all changed at HSBC because we had a particular model where we had a business development lead, and then we had relationship management from a banking perspective, which then fed into uh, wealth management where I sat. So it was nicely set up for us, but we weren't licensed in South Africa. So we still had to do a lot of work ourselves without relying on business development because the limitations were huge. But because of the professional orientation of the business and how they groomed us in the way that we were, uh, I found other ways of doing it. Also this way, this coaching culture that they created had us approach everything really, really differently. And that's where I learned to really build business, form new relationships, and serve those relationships to the extent that, and I'm only giving you the numbers because it becomes relevant to what I do today, to the extent that I was building an AUM book at 100 million rand a year. And that that was even good on an international basis. Uh, not as good as my counterparts in Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, London, and Dubai because they had access to way more real money and their average deal size was three times bigger. But nevertheless, uh, I and we did very well. Um, we weren't only riding the back of the recovery of the market. We were really developing uh, a valuable new business with good clients, expats in South Africa and, and South Africans and succumbent around the world. So that's, that's really my financial planning journey. Can we can we pause there a little bit? I wanted I want to chat about that coach training. Did it include yes. formal coach training, or if I'm sensing it's more, this is the way we do things at HSBC at that point at least. There was no formal training. I had a manager in the banking area of the business that was um, a qualified coach, a life coach, an NLP practitioner, and I spent a lot of time with him, asking questions, learning about um, a coaching way of being. And then after that, I went to a boutique asset management business, which had a consultancy function into independent financial planning businesses, all of which you're familiar with. And it's that business that sent us on courses. And that's when I learned to be a coach. But there were coaches at HSBC at very high levels. And that the way that they showed up really created this culture, which cascaded down to the rest of the business. And we all felt it. So it seems true that saying of people don't leave a business, they leave a manager. And in this case, you were exposed to this different way of managing. Yes. And it wasn't just that. It was also the fact that micromanagement out of South Africa is very different to how we see it. We don't like it here. And everything's micromanagement. If you talk to me, you're micromanaging. In the rest of the world, they seem to call it management. Uh, so I experienced this thing called, truly called micromanagement, which... Uh, well, that is that we in South Africa might call micromanagement. To me, it's just an incredible, tough sales function. Although we were doing financial planning and the client was at the center of everything, we had a incredibly uh, challenging uh, goals uh, to the extent that we would sit every single morning, very early in the morning, as a team, and we would look we would look at what's going on, what we need to be going on, where we are relative to that, where the gap is. So here's an example of 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 the kind of conversations we would have. Yesterday, you said that you would that you were seeing five uh, potential clients for first meetings. How did that go? I saw four. What happened to the fifth one? Uh, his wife died. So how are you making up for it? <laughs> so it was tough. It was tough. I, I used to describe it as, um, uh, what was that movie with 
uh, I'm forgetting his name, the boiler room. I used to describe it as the boiler room, um, more legal than that movie. But we, we were under a lot of pressure to perform. The thing is, though, we had managers showing up in meetings with us, and we had a very specific way of interacting and engaging with clients that was fully in service to those clients. So we had to marry the, the, the need to hit the goals with the need to, to serve the clients to the extent that if we didn't, and I know it's a qualitative measure, but there were people that reviewed documents, sat in meetings, re- listened to phone calls. If we didn't, we would be put on, uh, on either, either a remediate, as it was called, or there would be a fail, which had dire consequences to income. At the same time, there were incentives on the upside for example, if we were a CFP, the bonuses were bigger. If we were advanced CFPs, the bonuses were even bigger. So uh, the performance was driven hard, but the rewards were massive based on client centricity and qualifications. But I don't want to give HSBC too much of a punt here, although it was a very good experience for me. No, but it seems like back in 2008 that this was a, a really good base um, that I think a lot of people would be surprised that that's what you, you can actually accomplish through having a sales focus, but as long as it's more geared towards the client receiving a benefit. Because yes. I'm always positioning it to say that our relationship should be mutually beneficial. The client should get more out of this relationship and the advisor should get out. If yes. one of those two parts fail, it leads to an unhappiness, maybe now or maybe in the future. Like how, how do you position relationships between potential financial planners and, and clients in that context? Well, going on from what you just said, I think... That is is um, based on two things. The first is transparency, and the second is agreement. And if any financial planner embraces those two things, the relationship is so much more pure than it could ever have been. You think about it. Agreements can be managed. Expectations not met lead to disappointment. And in the coaching world, you know, we learn contracting is an important piece. I don't want to jump the gun. Tell me a little bit more about the world after HSBC. So HSBC was closing offices around the world, um, consolidating everything back to Jersey, and the writing was on the wall. So I joined. I joined Axis. I can't remember. Do you do you name names on this podcast? <laughs> we can name names, but um, I'm sure Andrew Bradley has come up enough times in this. Uh, but Probably yeah, you're, on you're, as well. welcome, you're yeah, welcome. You're so welcome to share I joined, your story. I joined Axis um, toward the end of of the brand of Axis, but I was fortunate enough to be part of a really amazing team there. And then Old Mutual obviously bought Axis, and I joined Old Mutual Wealth, which was one of the five or six companies at that time that formed Old Mutual Wealth. And um, we had Old Mutual Wealth then built the, the financial planning coaching team. Um, ultimately, when I was still there, of 11 people around the country. And we continued the work that Axis began, which was really going into independent, at least that was the space that I played in, independent financial planning businesses and trying to add a, as much value to them as possible, again, with financial planning coaching, um, which was consultancy and practice management. And you know, the truth is that to this day, the, to my knowledge, there isn't an independent consultancy until now doing that. There are a lot of institutions and and people that are that are offering value to independent financial planning businesses, but it's always on some kind of condition, even if the condition has already been filled. So let, let's imagine there's a subscription service of some sort and the business providing the, the service into the financial planning practice or organization um, has reached its quota. 
So now they're looking for ways to continue to add value to their clients over and above their core business. So they start creating webinars and putting other people into their business and so on. Let's imagine it's an asset management business. How do you ensure that uh, that your financial planners' clients are putting their money in your funds on your platform? So add value by consulting into their business. But there's always, whether it's implicit or explicit, there's some kind of term and condition to that. And that's where I got thinking about the opportunity of independent consultancy, especially into the IFA world. And as I said, I, until this time, I don't think other businesses exist that are purely there for advice. I like how you use the term until now. You can't leave the leave this conversation without expanding a little bit on oh, that. Oh, I see our uh, time is up. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're breaking up a bit. <laughs> All right, so I went from HSBC to Access into Old Mutual Wealth. Um, between Access and Old Mutual Wealth, I was set, sent on the coaching courses. Uh, there was some neuro leadership, some integral coaching through UCT, and that's really what developed my love for coaching. And to the extent that I went to Exco at Old Mutual Wealth and said, yeah, I, I really love it. I don't, I don't want to lose the raw um, talent and I'm giving the, the raw capacity in this regard, and I'd like to con- uh, coach on the side which is where it all started. And I continued to, uh, I stuck to our agreement where I have a very limited number of clients and I do it outside of working hours. But what that did was it kept feeding the love for coaching and also found my preferred niche in that respect, which was very specifically entrepreneurs and business owners. And I think it was about two and a half years after I started doing that, that I made the jump into success coaching, which is the uh, my coaching business. And then it was only natural that I added financial planners to entrepreneurs and business owners. There's also a similar mindset in that there's a large independency to the way that they uh, that that they show up in their businesses. And also, I have a love for the profession, and I get it, and I've got the background. I retain my CFP, and I've always said for years and years and years that I want to play my part in helping to professionalize the industry. So, how can I do it? How can I do it as a coach? Well through coaching financial planners and working with financial planning businesses. And I've done that in a number of ways over the last, where are we, three or almost four years. In June, will be four years that, I, that I've been on my own. I do want to know about that transition out of Old Mutual, right? So a lot of people, they set something up, they test it, they see if it works. But before they do that, they stop their formal employment. They stop that income stream and they give themselves a time limit to say, you know, if this works within the next three months, then I'll continue pursuing that. You chose a slightly different approach. You built the skills. You went back to your employer and said, can I do this part-time? Tell me about the thinking behind behind that. Was it more strategic or did you just position this and say, oh, the intention was never for it to become your full-time gig, yet it just was the natural evolution? Well, a combination of everything you just said. And there's actually a, a, an entertaining and horrific story at the same time. So I gave myself seven months. So I went to Exco and I got permission to do this and my love for it kept, uh, it continued to kind of grow. And at some point I realized that I would want to leave employment and start my own thing. And uh, I, I flew to London and met with uh, a mentor coach of mine at a, an intensive where there were 143 coaches from around the world. It was so incredibly inspirational. I also met my future coach there. Um, a Canadian guy. I'd been following the guy for a while. Um, I, sp- I had a number of conversations with him over a number of months. 
um, to learn that he, even though he says dollars and he lives in Canada, he was still charging American dollars, which I think was sneaky. But I started working with him and I had a seven-month plan to leave. I don't know if I told the company that, but I had a seven-month plan to be ready to jump ship. And it was, Louis, the perfect plan. Everything was laid out. Everything, except for one thing. I still had a full-time job to deliver on. <laughs> what did Mike Tyson say? Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah. Well, and, and, that... and was this a time when you had a significant other, you had other responsibilities, or was it just oh, yes. old mutual yes. coaching? I, yes. I, I, I was married. I had, uh, at that time, uh, three-year-old twin boys uh, that were quite demanding. There, there was a lot going on. Uh, because of the twins, I had lost so much sleep. I, I was going through ill health. It was mad. And I had so much focus on delivering on my employment job that my commitment to that job was was primary. The, the establishment of the sideline business was secondary. But now with a perfect plan, I had to continue, continue with the primary focus. Anyway, it all worked out okay. Uh, the result was that I jumped ship and I didn't land in exactly the way that I wanted to where I wanted to. Uh, that being said, I established a business. I think I had four clients when I left, just you know, four, <laughs> four, four clients. But I'd been in conversation with a few. So I activated a pipeline. I had been holding this pipeline and being in conversation. I activated that pipeline. And I'd actually built up significantly quickly um, just with a little bit of fear because a, a few of the for example, group coaching sessions. Uh, I have these themed coaching circles. Uh, I wasn't ready for them. I, I wasn't ready and I didn't have the time. So um, I built up to financially a point that was acceptable in a very short time and then COVID hit. <laughs> but you know, I, I dealt with 2008 so I could deal with something else. So in 2008, there was a, an opportunity to um, have deep conversations with people that understood money and were liquid. Uh, in 2020, there was an opportunity to go from 50%. Unfortunately, I was 50% uh, virtual at that time to 100% virtual and do different things. So one of the ideas I had when I started Success Coaching was this brand of mine, Insane Prospecting, was to launch the bootcamp. That's how Insane Prospecting began with the bootcamp. And I launched it in... August in Johannesburg and October in Cape Town. I think that's what it is. And I went to PE in Durban as well. And the next one was scheduled for March 2020. And then it was announced that COVID, uh, well, that lockdowns were landing and uh, that was canceled. But then I started the webinar, which continues to this day. And I still remember in the marketing slash just going all over social media and saying that this webinar is starting. It was a once-off. I was saying, my words were something along the lines of, for those financial advisors who wish to continue prospecting, but whose potential clients are social distancing, this webinar is for you. It's a once-off. <laughs> and here we are four years later, to be three, three years later. Three years later, the webinar continues. I think there was a seven-month sabbatical. But it also gave me the opportunity to, uh, to do what I wanted to do, which was take the idea of the webinar and turn it into an online course which is, to my mind, to my knowledge, the only existing, exclusively developed uh, online course for financial advisors in the prospecting space in the English-speaking world. It took me seven months, and I had to go buy lights and things when shops were still very restrictive. 
sneaking in. Jason, before we get to the work around what you did in prospecting, it strikes me that, you know, moving from Old Mutual to your own business, you had to build this pipeline, right? Create this list of potential prospects. But at the same time, the value offering was very different because in financial planning, we often get paid, you know, through the products, right? Some There's a third party or indirectly we get to recover the fees. Yet now you had to position it to say, you need to write out a check or someone has to pay on your behalf. And a lot of financial planners struggle with that mindset when it comes to charging for financial planning fees. Share with us how you how you went through just the mental struggle around positioning that or did it just happen naturally? It was a process, but I had had some experience in that. So at HSBC, we, we charged 3% upfront and we had to position that. <laughs> so there's some experience about asking for a high fee and needing to yeah. deliver value into that fee. And then we being, I want to say fee-based, but it was a version of fee-based, but then moving into the the access and then all mutual wealth world and talking about fee-based financial planning at large with other independent financial planners, um, franchises, and even agency, even when agencies say we can't invoice Trust me, a lot of agencies can invoice. They just got to find the right people and press the right buttons. But a lot of the work that I did when I was um, consulting with a financial planning team into businesses was about was around two things that financial planners struggled with. The first, and I'll mention the lesser one first, was about uh, was about inviting clients to clients to their offices instead of going to the client's office which was huge in the mind of financial planners. Now, I had a lot of experience around that because I'd made the decision years before that if I want to be effective and efficient with my time, I need to be on the road less. I need to be in beautiful offices with great coffee where I can invite clients to it. I can double my number of meetings um, during the day. You can tell I didn't have kids at that time. And then I could write up the financial plans at night and then I got para planning. So that just made everything easier. But needless to say, and I still remember the first person that I ever invited to my office because I was told you got to get in your this was insurance days you got to get in your car and go to a client's and the first person I ever invited to the office was a junior partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers and the guy was on the phone he goes what I have never been told that I have to go to a financial advisor's office before you will come to me so I said okay and I went to him built a good relationship never went to him again he kept coming to me so that was the one thing and the next well, thing what was that conversation like how did you position it while we're on that point like what changed between you going to him and the next meeting? The first thing was that I didn't argue him. He said, you'll come to my office. I said, okay, I'll come to your office. It's like, I don't know, 10 Ks down the road. And nice remove the barrier, okay? Absolutely. Put him, so from a, from a neuroscience point of view, I put him on his uh, front foot instead of his back foot. Okay, put him in rest, digest, <laughs> not fight flight by putting him, by being in agreement with him. And then when I was at his office, we, I built a relationship like I normally would through rapport and asking uh, pertinent questions, getting him to think and, um, and offering value through the financial planning process as well. And toward the end, as, and, and I don't have pure memory of this, I just know how I did it and how I continue to do it, is that I suggested that next time he come to my office because it's a beautiful office, I'd love him to meet my team, um, love him to see where we operate from, and he has to try my coffee served by and there were two guys in tuxedos that served the coffee and he has to meet my receptionist who will at times answer the phone because she's just wonderful and if that experience is delivered adequately then people are, uh, will, will keep coming back so then i took what what i had 
done and I took what I had learned and I took ideas of coaching way of being and conversational skills and listening skills and so on. And I, I packaged all of that and I worked with other financial planners to do the same. So most of the people I worked with, before long, they would be inviting people to their offices, saving time. And then we enter into the fee-based conversation. It's very much the same thing. That first time you ever invite someone over to your office, if you've been going to them, or that first time you ever ask someone to pay a fee when you've always been ex um, earning the implicit commission is, is a hurdle. It's a mental hurdle. And you just have to do it. There's some practice and some, maybe some preparation around how you do it, but you just have to do it. And you know what? Once you do it, you raise the bar and you'll never go back. Like, for example, if you charge 5,000 Rand for a financial plan and that, that's your fee and you decide you're going to go to 10,000 Rand, it will be hard for you to ask for 10,000 Rand the first time. But once you've done it, you will never go back, ever. You've raised the bar. That's your worth. The, the delivery that you have for your clients is 10,000 rand for a plan, okay? But you know that they're financial planners. If you're not doing it, charging 40,000 rand because that's the value. So it's exactly the same with coaching. I said I flew to London to meet with a mentor who is the only coach in the world that I know of to, to be a salesman in the coaching space. There are a lot of good coaches, but like many professionals, they're not good salespeople. And the great thing about what I learned and what attracted me to this person, a Brit living in LA, is that he sells through coaching. So let me translate that to financial planning. You, Louis, could sit in, and you know this, but you, Louis, could sit in front of a financial planning client and you could go, you know what, if you, were, if you and I were to work together, we'd do this and we'd do that and it would cost you this much and then we'll go through a few steps and we'll meet at the end of the year, if not twice a year, and we'll review. Okay, great, but that's all promises. That's all promises. There's, you're telling me that, but the five guys that I met before you told me exactly the same thing. Or you could show up, Louis, in front of your potential client and just ask them questions that no other financial advisor has ever asked them. Questions about their dreams, questions about what keeps them awake at night, questions about their children's dreams, their children's children's dreams, their fears, like what load shedding actually means to them. Oh, what they're doing about it, not do you have panels or inverters, but like if this stage six goes on to seven or eight in a year's time, what does it mean for you and your family? And that makes the difference. And that's what I do as a coach when I sit in front of a potential client is I say, well, I could tell you about coaching or I could coach you. And if I coach them, they receive a particular experience. If I'm good and I think I am, they'll have insights within that experience and then all I have to do, whether I'm a coach or a financial planner, is say something like, if you experience this within this 30 minutes, imagine we could work together from a coach's point of view, week in and week out, from a financial planner's view, point of view, if we could work together year in and year out. So from a prospecting point of view, the brand's called Insane Prospecting. I position that brand as I help financial advisors and this is a debate that we've had, financial advisors or financial planners, but I think an advisor is more all-encompassing and more people relate to it. And I know legislation is going to say, I know the story. But the other debate is around the word prospecting, which you raised earlier. But the, the brand of insane prospecting helps or supports financial advisors to get in front of potential clients because that's where the struggle is. That's where it is. How, the question is, and this whole thing is built on the basis of the question, 
is how do I get in front of potential clients? There's a lot of collateral and there's services and businesses, institutions, people that help advisors once they're in front of a, a client, like Pareto, Duncan McPherson. Amazing. So much good stuff. But it plays right in that space. And I, I'm mentioning this because when I talk about that initial conversation, showing up as a coach, even if you're a financial planner, for the first and only time last year, October, I did a presentation with FPI. It's a webinar. It's available on FPI's LearnTech. An hour around exactly how you need to have that conversation to take potential clients or even existing clients where they have never been and then in inverted commas again, sell them on the back of that. But it's not, you're not selling something they can't touch and feel. You're selling the experience they just had because it's tangible and it's real and they can feel it and it's meaningful. And that's what financial planning is. Financial planning is, is, is an experience that people have when you relate the numbers to how they feel about their lives. It's about taking people from where they are to where they need to or want to be. And if you can have them look into that and see it for themselves, like they've never seen it before, you're playing a whole different game with your clients. Jason, I love how you kind of just narrow in, in that conversation to say, what does this mean to you? What feelings are coming up? And it reminds me of a story of Ross Marino, who's a, a fellow financial transitionist that has two coffee cups and both of them says, think, feel, do. And he keeps on holding on to those coffee cups in his meetings to remind clients, these are the things we need to work on. And we're often just jumping to do, oh, you know, what are we gonna, what are we gonna implement and what are we what planning are we gonna do? And we skip the thinking and the feeling component. And it feels like your conversation or like right there in the field, like, hey, what shows up? Are people surprised? by the types of conversations? Or is it now getting to a stage where, hey, this is what I'm expecting. Like a lot of financial planners have had some coach training. They're becoming more aware of emotions and the conversations lead more to transformational than transactional. Like, oh, is this still so foreign that so few people are doing it that people are saying, oh, wow, um, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, In the coaching world, I don't think that it's foreign. I think it's probably a relief. Like, you know, I found the person that I'm looking for. In the financial planning world, it, it is often a surprise uh, because, and David Kopp and I were having a conversation with someone this morning where we, we were talking about bits and pieces of this. And we said, if you show up with, in front of your clients like this, you are in the top one percentile of financial planners without a shadow of a doubt. So it is still, unfortunately, a surprise to a lot of clients, but it's a, it's a relief of a surprise because they, everyone's had a financial advisor, right? Everyone. And they've, they've experienced different forms of financial planning, different processes, different personalities. Uh, they've had financial advisors come and go. And the whole thing with this is that let, let's imagine a, a client is looking for a new financial planner, um, or at least their eyes and ears are open to it. And they could be lining up three, or they could have, and they meet with you, Louis, and they've got two coming up. And what they want to experience is that once they've met with you, they're not even hearing a word that the next one's saying because you blew them away because you cared so much about their future, not only financial well-being, but their future well-being. And if they had met with two already and now they, they, they meet with you, they should be feeling that they, they, should, they shouldn't even remember what the other two were talking about. They should walk away from that going, I actually don't even remember the names of those two other guys. I'm going to work with Louis. 
because it is so powerful. But unfortunately, there are a number of things that are getting in the way of all financial uh, advisors uh, showing up with more of a coaching way of being. And honestly, a lot of it is institutional. A lot of it is legacy. Um, a lot of it is financial. Some of it is greed. Um, so, and a lot of it is leadership. So unfortunately, in my opinion, too much of the industry is still old school insurance based. And the industry is attracting uh, young, unqualified advisors to tick boxes and teaching them about product. And you have, you, if you have a look at the education within institutions, there's, they, got, they talk about advice learning, but there's way more product learning, way more product learning. And we're not building the pool of specialists at the rates that we need to. And often when we do, we lose a lot of them to the industry. What we're talking about here, this behavioral coaching uh, way of being, is the next level. You need to be, in my opinion, you need to be a qualified financial planner, ideally a certified financial planner professional. You need to have some experience. You need to have developed a skill. You need to have experienced some success, either own or be in a business that's doing okay. And then you start to bolt on the additional learning. Coaching courses are not cheap. Coaching courses are a lot of work. Uh, work on self as well because you face up against yourself. You challenge your way of thinking, your belief systems. You, it's hard. It's hard. And then you still have to go and do this with your clients. So there are things getting in the way of every financial advisor adopting this way of being and showing up coach-like. But we are seeing uh, some really good courses out there. We are seeing uh, many businesses that are changing the way that they do things. They're uh, reviewing, or if it's new business, creating a philosophy that is more client-first or client-centric, uh, systems that support the business and support the clients, processes that help them with efficiency uh, and carve out time so that they can do what they need to do, which is being in front of, in front of clients. So there are what I always describe it as as pockets of excellence. And these pockets, in my opinion, are getting bigger and they're more pockets. But we have a long way to go. Uh, what I love is that so many of these financial planners like you and your business and, and similar are putting so much time and effort into their contributions to the industry. And I think as it grows and we've got more people and more businesses contributing in these ways, uh, we'll get to a point where we will experience the professional growth to be exponential, hopefully sooner rather than later. Jason, I can't agree more with you that specifically that leadership piece. And, and I want to know, like, which industries do you look at to inspire the changes that you're seeing? Like, apart from coaching, which industries do you look at and say, hey, we can, as financial planners, we can learn. We can, we can take some of that that they're doing and we can apply it to what, what we're doing the first thing that comes to mind is uh, digital marketing because I have a look. I had a look at how digital marketing embraced, pivoted, drove forward in COVID. I know it was an opportunity for the industry, but it was it was really inspiring the way they they often did things. And you know, it's not everyone. Not not everyone embraced that. I, I've got a very large digital marketing client. And uh, to the extent that they're opening in Europe, they've got international brands now. And I work with their leadership team as well as their second tier leadership team. And it, 
it is hard to limit it to an industry like that, but I think that digital marketing came to mind off the cuff because those that did well saw opportunity, assuming they took an entrepreneurial kind of approach to it, and they embraced it. And they pivoted in the way that they needed to. And those, and then there was the separation of you know the doers and the watchers, right? The doers and, and the observers. I can tell you which industries don't inspire me. And I'm, I'm going to lean on the, uh, the financial planning legacy here because too many financial planners keep comparing themselves to the likes of doctors. And there are a few, but I'm going to focus on doctors because, you know, they talk about in many ways, you should be like a doctor. Prefer, they may even say a doctor never goes to your house. They don't do house calls anymore. Be professional like a doctor. But the last three years have shown us that doctors are really so this may be controversial, are really quick to prescribe without doing a full needs analysis. Exactly what we in the financial planning profession advocate against. And that's not all doctors. I think surgeons are incredibly specialized professional, but you know, it's the stories of general practitioners, and this is my strong opinion here, that are giving out anti-anxiety drug prescriptions like, like jelly tots. Um, so let's not, as financial planners, let's not compare ourselves to other professions that don't support the client-centric philosophy that good financial planning does. Financial planning is an incredible profession that if stuck to its guns, if all of the people, institutions, businesses, agencies, franchises, just for example, stick to the, at least the idea of the six-step financial plan and put their clients in the center of it. Boy, will the delivery be amazing. That's so great that you're not only focused on, hey, this is what we can do right, but also try and avoid relationships. I, have, I don't have a lot of friends or family members that rave about their doctors. The ones that I do are doctors that are caring, that phone in and say, hey, I know I saw you last week, but how are you doing today? I have not heard yeah. of many doctors that do that. And I, I want to echo what you're saying, Jason. If you can put the client at the center and a human-first approach, you'll not only most likely future-proof your business, you'll be a lot more fulfilled just as a human. And the space that you're in, you seem very content with the work that you're doing now. Um, I know we're coming up towards the end of our conversation. It, it and excites me. We haven't even me. gotten to the seed that I dropped no, earlier. Yeah, we haven't even <laughs> gotten into that. Do you want to expand a bit on that or should we leave Just that for episode very, two? <laughs> very briefly, David Kopp and I uh, soft launched FI Consult, it stands for Financial, Financial Institution Consulting uh, in March and we'll officially launch it in April. And it really is a, a consultancy very exclusively into the financial planning industry to work with uh, with all sizes of financial planning businesses. We're geared to more uh, small to medium right now but we're building collateral and content to very large businesses as well. But effectively, what we're doing is we're working, or we're partnering with them to work in and on their businesses to help those businesses evolve and take the next steps to where they're going. And the way that we do this is uh, uh, is by working with specific themes. Uh, so we, we we follow a, a modeling, I mean, a, a coaching uh, approach to the way that we do things, which is really having conversations for exploration and understanding. So we go into the business in depth and understand everything from people to processes to systems. We identify the gaps. 
we, we create projects around those gaps, and then we come up with solutions that we then implement with those businesses. Jason, you've set up the conversation, and I'm so glad to say I've scheduled some time with David to be on the show. So that discussion <laughs> will be a lot more um, sales-driven to share what it is that you're doing and, and how we're going to build this profession. I know Paul Armser would be very upset with you for calling this an industry, and we, we are straddling both. Jason, all the best with what you're building, and what would be the best place for people to reach you when they want to see your cartoons, they want to have a conversation <laughs> about coaching and consulting? So. LinkedIn, the place where professionals hang out, has everything over there. Jason Burnick on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Louis. Had fun. Thank you.